0: Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. As usual, this is a Tuesday episode, so our friend and producer Hugo Lindgren's here with us. Hugo had kind of a crazy idea over the weekend, so I'm just going to turn it over to you, Hugo, and and go for it. Okay, I'm going to explain it.
1: So I was reading this book called Talent, How to Identify Energizers, Creatives, and Winners Around the World. It's written by Tyler Cowen, who's been a a guest on this podcast, and Daniel Gross, who I gather is kind of a luminary in the tech world. so the the book, as as it as the title implies, is really just sort of like it, it's about sort of talent spotting as a as a thing that you know all successful people uh, need to be able to do to one degree or another. And it offers a bunch of insights and tips and um, sort of analysis on on how it's done. And one of the cool things they do in the book is they they um, they give you uh, a bunch of different strategies for interviewing job candidates. So okay. so what we're going to do, Bradley, is. You are the job candidate, which I, I realize is kind of a um, uh, sort of a crazy well, uh, way you know, to go about it. I,
0: I am in a lot of ways all the time, right? Because right. I, I have to pitch LPs, right? Uh, sometimes we, I still help Chris pitching clients. Sometimes right. I to help Bob pitch Pericles clients. So like, I, you know, I, I think in a weird way, I'm very, very frequently the candidate. Right. The job. Can
1: so be. it feels yeah. natural to you, but I wonder if these questions will feel natural no, we'll to you. Yeah. We'll, and and one of the things that when we get through them, I'm going to ask about ten of them. Okay. So so this is going to be a, this is going to be you know kind of intense, right? You ready? I'm up for it. Okay. It starts out easy, so don't get don't don't get too cocky. lulled yeah. into thinking it's going to be that way. Um, How did you spend your morning today?
0: I woke up. I ordered coffee because our kitchen renovation is not done yet. Woke up, Lyle. We read the post. Uh, so
1: that's a thing you do, you read with Lyle every yeah, we morning? Yeah, I read every single morning. Anything catch your attention this morning, reading the post? Not posts?
0: really. You know, there's still a lot about the Queen. Oh, you know what the most useful thing was? It's, it's UN week, so in terms of getting around town, take the subway. <laughs> I actually hadn't realized it was UN week, so that was actually helpful, because on Wednesday... They said it's um, four miles an hour now to travel during UN week, so when I go up to Columbia on Wednesday, I could take an Uber or the train, Upside of Newburghs I can do calls while I'm on the way there. Right. But uh, from my office to Columbia would be like five and a half hours, based at that pace. So I'll take the train.
1: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, so that uh, anything else this morning? Because I'm looking for more productive activities. Things yeah. that, like, let well, uh, explain. I
0: read, I read you know multiple newspapers: The Washington Post, uh, The New York Post, Wall Street Journal. Um, I walked the dog. I took care of my kids. I took them to school. So I think fairly productive. Okay. Inside.
1: What's the furthest you've ever been from another human?
0: You know, when I was in college, um, spring break, you know, a bunch of us just kind of, we were spending the semester in Madrid as my junior year. And everybody, you know, we all kind of spring break went around Europe together. And then I really want to go to Sicily, you know, it kind of just Growing up in New York, watching The Godfather too much, all that other stuff. <laughs> and nobody else wanted to go. I wanted to check
1: out so the Godfather I like, land. Yeah,
0: so I was like, fuck it, I'll just go by myself. And so I departed them from Rome. And what was incredible about it is, at the time, my Spanish was actually really good, because they don't speak English in Spain, or at least they didn't at the time. So you have to learn Spanish. And Spanish and Italian are close enough that in the rest of Italy, I could get by. right. Sicilian's like totally different, right? And like they weren't super friendly to begin with. So not only was I like however far away from anyone else, I didn't say a word to anyone for three days. I would point to stuff that I wanted, but basically all I really did was like read and just sort of hang out in various places in Syracuse.
1: I guess partially this question is probably getting at, do you ever go off into the middle of the woods or climb a mountain or, or do something that's completely solo?
0: No. I don't, Uh, in part because I think that I do get energy from dealing with other people, and in part because in real life, I have too much responsibility to do that.
1: Um, What's something weird or unusual you did early on in life?
0: Two things. One, when I was in eighth grade, I changed my name to Giuseppe. (laughs) No, you didn't. I did, swear to God. Ask my parents. Wait, this is
1: weirdly related to the Sicilian thing.
0: Yeah, it all kind of fits together. Again, this was eighth grade, not college. I I think I I kept it going for a while. you know, I, I, I think listeners to this podcast are probably into it over time, had kind of a, a shitty childhood and didn't want to be you know, who I was. And so I literally tried changing my name once. And, you know, I am pretty uh, compelling when I want to make an argument. Stubborn, or stubborn. Stubborn and all those things. And it kind of stuck. My parents, I remember, they went to Hebrew school back to school night and they came back so frustrated because the teacher said, Giuseppe's doing a really good oh job. My God. And like,
1: oh, my God. They're like, no, don't call him that. I almost want to call bullshit on this story. Call, but talk I to Gabe. Yeah, he works okay. with you. Yeah, I know, I know, yeah. I know. I am going to talk to Gabe about I'm going to check up on that. And then I would
0: say the other thing is, and this was a little more my 20s, but uh, created this thing called Operation Sandwich where a bunch of friends of mine from law school, we would pick a city, make a list of 10 sandwiches that we wanted to eat, go there and eat them all in one day. And we did that for at least 10 years.
1: Good answer. I like that. I, 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 I recall Operation Sandwich from our previous discussions. Um, what's a story one of your references might tell me when I
0: call them? Um, good question. And the, Well, let's see. So if you called... Um, References, would these be previous employers or just anyone?
1: Well, let's say maybe Jamie would be one of your references, right? Sure. So I I called Jamie and and I asked him, I was like, tell me really something about Bradley that like no one else is going to tell me.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that what he will tell you is whenever he, he and I obviously partner a lot of stuff together. And I think that he'll tell you about a call that we had. I won't name their names, but with two very blue blood, Upper East Side, extremely rich people. The kind of people
1: that Jamie Powell's around with. Yeah, I'm like
0: his rogue friend. And like, uh, they were worried, it was a couple of while ago, they were worried about the city veering too far left. so They wanted to know what could be done about it. And so I kind of explained, like, here's how you would take on the DSA. Here's what you'd have to do, all of that. And I said to them, look, but just so you understand, like, the world is rough these days. So, like, you can do this, and I think we could be effective and successful, But you're going to get some blowback, probably for sure, on social media. Could even be a protest in front of your house, your country house or whatever it is. They disappeared. And what Jamie, I think, would say is the difference between me and them is like, I don't give a fuck, right? Like, if I want to do something, especially I think it's the right thing to do, I'm going to do it and I don't run away like these blue bloods do simply because they're afraid someone might criticize them. Okay.
1: Um, What is one mainstream or consensus view that you wholeheartedly agree with?
0: That's a really good question. So, would this, so then this is this not like a controversy on like pro-choice or anti-gun or whatever? This would just be like... Yeah, I think just, it's sort of... Yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you one. I believe in God. Okay. Yeah. I, right. I I believe in God. I believe in faith. I pray every day. And I understand, oddly, it is clearly a mainstream view around the world. Interestingly, it's not a mainstream view necessarily in the little world that I live in, right? I don't know that all of my friends in college would say they're, they're atheists, but I think in practice they're basically agnostic the vast majority of the time, and I'm not. Um,
1: if I was the perfect Netflix—this is a weird question. If I was the perfect Netflix— <laughs> Did you Netflix, write these or tarlet, tarlet No, these talent. are all from the book. Okay. These are verbatim, too. Or I'm trying to make them verbatim. I, I literally cut and pasted them. Um, if I was the perfect Netflix— what type of movies would I recommend for you and why?
0: If, oh, okay. Um, I think you would recommend for me... Um, I don't watch that many movies. I guess you would recommend, like, thriller drama types that are sort of exciting and but still somewhat serious or kind of funny, quirky, indie, Wes Anderson-type movies. Um, and I would guess the reason why is... Part of me, I like to think, sort of has a decent sense of humor and tries to see the humor in life, and then part of me likes a lot of drama and excitement, and that's why my career is the way it is, and that's why my you know, life, for both for better and for worse, is the way it is. Have you seen Hustle
1: by uh, yeah. Adam Sandler? Did, yeah, it was cute. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah,
0: I liked it. Um, how
1: do you feel you are different from the people at your current company?
0: Oh, well, look, first Pretend of all... Pretend that
1: you're not the boss, just for a second. Oh, okay. Um, You're just like a guy who has a high-ranking position.
0: Got it. I mean, I would say some things that might distinguish me, both positive and negative, is I am very risk-friendly, and so I'm willing to put a lot out there that sometimes works out in a huge way, oftentimes works out in failure. Um, I would say that I just work at, like, much, much faster pace than everyone else. And as a result, I can just get a lot more done, and I don't know why I can do that, but I can. Uh, and it's, it's a, one of the advantages that I have. Um, and I would say also that um, I am probably a lot more impatient uh, than they are, partly because maybe I am working at a much faster pace and because I am so risk-friendly. But you know, I think everyone there at any job I've ever had moves too slowly, takes too long to respond to emails, takes too long to make decisions, um, and it frustrates me and, and getting off the interview thing from, well, that's why I started my own company, um, because I can't deal with working for anyone else.
1: Um- so you might not want this job, in other words. That if, I, I'll,
0: that's why I said to, to remove that from the interview.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, what views do you hold religiously almost irrationally? let us We're going to have to discount the other ori- religious yeah. view you just said, because that's sort of a different thing anyway. I Yeah, I, I would at. say
0: in this case, I, I believe in God. I really do believe in higher power. I believe that God created the world, but I don't believe in sort of an activist, hellfire, heaven and hell kind of God. I believe that God created the universe in some form, not in the way the Bible says it, but but the gases that led to the Big Bang Theory, yeah. this we are one of many planets, many universes, this is how we happened to evolve. Um, and I don't think that at a given moment, God is sort of moving pieces on the chessboard, um, nor do I even think that there's an afterlife or, re- or any kind of reward for, for being good or punishment for being bad, other than what you have in this life specifically, and let me veer off for a second here because it's my podcast. <laughs> one of the things that I really like about Judaism, and I don't, you know, I don't subscribe to, to all of the, the doctrine by by, any, by a long shot, but what I like about it is there is no afterlife, right? There's no reincarnation. This is it. You get one shot on earth, and ultimately, it's up to you to make it as good and fruitful and happy as possible, and the best way to make it that happy as possible is to be a good person. If you have fulfillment, if you have meaning, if you have good relationships, your happiness will be significantly greater. And the reward for being good is your own happiness. And look, if you look at all of the happiness science, it backs that up completely. So arguably, that Tom would figure this out thousands of years you know, before Arthur Brooks and Dan Gilbert and Gretchen Rubin and everyone else. So um, I, I really like that mentality. I think that that works well for me. Um, but it's not to your question.
1: Um, what is something esoteric that you do?
0: <laughs> I think that one is, you know... Is that uh, not something we're going to talk about? No, 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 no. I just mean like, you know, I'm an oddball. So like, you know, it's like... Everything's esoteric. Everything's <laughs> esoteric. Right. Let um, me find one that is... What if
1: Harper were answering this question? Mm, what is something esoteric that you do? What do your kids make fun of that. you for doing?
0: My kids make fun of me... Abby makes fun of me for being stressed out at the airport, me and Lyle. It's um, funny. I wouldn't think you would be so stressed out at the funny. airport. It's funny. I only am when I'm with... The, the family. ...them and with, like, lots of luggage. I freaked out once um, at Delta. It was totally my... Or American. I actually bought the g- gift cards to apologize. Uh, to, the, felt, to the
1: employees? Yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, I wow. felt so bad. But I had luggage and the dog and the kids and we'd already been bumped off of, like, two flights and it happened again and I just... And lost it, so uh, definitely Abby makes fun of me uh, for that. Um, do you feel
1: appreciated at your current job? What was the biggest way in which you did not feel appreciated? I
0: do feel appreciated in my current job, and I guess I'm going to answer this question as the boss because I think it's a worthwhile answer, which is. Everybody, and look, my employees, I really think are great and they work hard and they are loyal and they are talented and they are dedicated, but they're still employees, right? They're not the owner, which means when they do something good or just as time passes, everybody wants more, more money, you know, more bonus, more equity, more comp in every single way. And there's only one case I can ever remember of anyone when, by the way, business goes up and down, right? And there are times where we have less money, our returns are lower, our strategy has fewer clients, whatever it is, no one ever comes to you and says, hey, I know that we're struggling a little bit. I'll take a pay cut. <laughs> or you don't have to give me a bonus this year. Never, ever, ever. This one, Bob Greenlee, to his great credit, did that once. But Bob's, you know, my partner in many ways. Um, so um, that's one thing I think that definitely is, is, I've noticed.
1: What is it that you practice that is analogous to how a pianist practices scales?
0: Hmm. You know, I don't know if it's the same, but but I work on my writing, you know, and I I really try to sort of consistently get better at it. And whether it's columns or something I need to write for work. And one of the downsides of my job is I just don't have that much writing for work anymore because sort of stuff just filters up to me. Or the novel I wrote, or whatever else. Um, It's a craft, and it's a craft that I really enjoy. Like, the main reason I hope that this book that we sent out gets published is I want the chance to write a second one, right? I like the characters. I think we can do more with it. Um, And I just, even if I'm not sort of whole enough to write the book, have no one ever see it, and feel like that still did what I needed it to do, I do need outside affirmation and, and praise and validation. But, um, what I really know is that I just enjoy the process of doing it. It's a craft. I'm generally not a process-oriented person, but this would be the one what place that I am.
1: Good answer. Um, which of your beliefs are you most likely wrong about?
0: Ooh, that's an excellent. He was told okay. me not to yeah, say. Yeah, I said not a to question. say good question, but he just said it. We're going to leave it in because. And, and then I just reacted without thinking.
1: Um, well, you're just buying a little time to think of the
0: answer. That's no, what you're doing. actually, actually wasn't in this case. Um, well, I believe, and the listeners heard me say this a lot, that we will not be one country in 25 years, absent some massive structural reform like mobile voting, which, again, the relevance is not that we can vote on our phones, it's that it moves primary turnout dramatically up, which shifts the political inputs, which then changes the policy outputs, which then leads to consensus and actual production. Um, so, but... I think people look at me like I'm crazy when I say that. And, and by the way, I, I'm not looking for there to be a civil war, or a dissolution of the Union in 25 years. I hope that we are still one country. This country does you know, in some ways a lot of bad, but also a lot of good. Um, but I do think in looking at the tenor of the world today, the polarization, the dysfunction, the anger, and the fact that social media magnifies everything, and the metaverse will do so by 10 times more, if we don't figure out a way to show that our government can actually function and get things done and make decisions and resolve problems, there will come a point, in my view, where people will say, maybe not even violently, but just like, look, this ain't working, right? Like, we can't get anything done, and we'd be better off breaking up into sort of an EU-type situation. But I've I've, never—no one has really agreed with me on that. (laughs) Now, um,
1: obviously this week with DeSantis and Abbott, you know, in the news, with sending migrants to northern places, cities— also, Martha's Vineyard. In the case of DeSantis, um, it
0: was a clever political move. By the
1: way, did you did you admire it? It just as just, a pure just as politics? a pure tactic. I thought it was good. Yeah, yeah, but but it was pretty disgusting. Is yeah, a, as I mean the whole the, whole
0: the whole thing to me is nuts. You know, I look. Uh, there was an article I think in the Washington Post over the weekend. Now we're veering off the job interview a little bit. No, it's but, okay. Um, we're getting to that, know you, Bradley. That you know uh, that the Biden administration kind of change policy a little bit around how to deal with immigration from Central America by saying, look, we're going to try to reduce corruption in Honduras, in Nicaragua, and even Costa Rica now, you know, everywhere else, um, because El Salvador, if those countries are better places to live, you won't have millions of people trying to, to migrate north and get to the United States and just that process is sort of awful in and of itself, whether they make it through or or not. And then of course, we see real atrocities like children being separated from their parents at the border. So um, it hasn't worked, right? It is really hard to nation build, it is really hard to make another country different. Like, yeah, you can buy leaders off to do the things you want to do. But that's just another form of corruption, right? You can't make them not corrupt, right. So that gets back to the fact that you had a failed policy in Trump, which was just we hate everyone you know with brown skin who's different from us. It's a failed policy for Biden in that they have not in any way figured out how to deal with the border and their sort of efforts at sort of fixing Central America have to, are unrealistic and totally failed. And we need a better solution. And you know I would argue at the very least we should have a lot more immigration, legal immigration into this country. The workforce needs it and our country is getting older. Um, people are dying at a faster rate than than we're having birth. Um, And we're gonna have this massive class of people who are gonna live a lot longer because of health and science, who will be retired. And if there's not younger people working and putting that into social security, the money's not gonna be there to take care of them. So I, I would exponentially increase immigration. And if you did that, you wouldn't have a lot of the problems that you have at the border because a lot of those people would be allowed to come in legally and it would be a much more peaceful process.
1: Um, we have three more questions. You okay. ready? Um, so what did you learn about success from watching the Michael Jordan documentary, The Last Shot? And the key is learn, not just something that
0: Yeah, that I already knew.
1: That you knew or, or sort of validated an I mean, existing opinion. W- what I
0: learned is it, there's at least an opinion that success and happiness is sort of a binary option and choice. Right. Mm-hmm. So Michael Jordan and then Kobe Bryant kinda of emulated it. Mm-hmm. Um from all accounts, seems like a miserable fucking human being, right? He seemed a little more at peace in the interviews.
1: From the evidence in the documentary. documentary.
0: When he was sort of older and having a scotch and smoking a cigar, he seemed a little more at peace than— Did he? I thought more than when you saw him screaming at his teammates on the court. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, look, he's the most successful basketball player ever, right? He won six titles. You know, uh, he's the greatest talent ever, all that stuff. But it came at the expense of being, you know, really an unhappy, miserable person— And so that was the message sent out from it. And I think, I don't know if I learned that, but the question that I had in my head is, is that what it takes? And if so, how ambitious am I, right? I am extremely exceptionally ambitious and I've always thought of my ambitions to be kind of limitless. But then when I watched that and i thought about this generally, it hit me like maybe it's not limitless because if what Jordan did is what it takes to reach the ultimate, ultimate pinnacle of your ambition, it's not worth it, right? Right. So I, I guess I learned that.
1: Uh, it's interesting the way you answered that question, because the second-to-last question, which is a favorite of Tyler Cowen's, is how ambitious are you? Exceptionally. Right.
0: So why? I think there's a few reasons. Um, I'm going to psychoanalyze myself for a second. That's what we're doing here. W- one is, you know, my family, is, as listeners are hear, tired of hearing about, because of the bookstore origin story has been told so many times, you know, came to this country. They survived the Holocaust. They lived in refugee camps for about five, six years. They came to this country in the early 1950s. Um, with you know very, very little, and they suffered so much, and so many people in their families died that it was drilled into me from the minute I was born. You have to succeed. You have to do great things. You, you know, everyone sacrificed and died and struggled for you, right? So I developed this tremendous sense of responsibility um, at an incredibly young age, which by the way, is completely unhealthy. They totally fucked me up. Um, <laughs> it wasn't a good thing to do at all. But nonetheless, even as a kid, I felt like I need to do great things. Ironically, when it turned out that I was turning down opportunities like being working in a law firm so I could pursue bigger ambitions, They didn't get it. They turned out all they really wanted was for me to make like a seven-figure salary and live in the suburbs and go on nice vacations. And I wanted to do the stuff that I do. um, And luckily I didn't listen to them. But um, that very much, I think, pushed it. I think the second is, you know, I didn't have many friends growing up. I got beat up a lot. Um, I had parents that had a hard time knowing how to support me during it. That's putting it nicely. Um, So as a result, my view growing up was, okay, My childhood sucks. My personal life maybe will always be very hard, but I will do incredible things and I will show them. Um, And that has been uh, a motivator too. And then the third is, is a little nicer, which is, you know, look, I've had the chance to do a lot of things that are interesting over the course of my career. A lot of them don't work, but some of them do. And sometimes when they work, you see results in very tangible ways, like our hunger efforts helping to feed 12 million more people and so when I see that, it motivates me. So for example, um, Lisa and I keep trying to get the federal government to put in more money for universal school meals. Every time there's a legislative vehicle, we jump all over it and I'm like Lucy with the football, right? Like they just keep taking it away from me and I write all these checks and I do all this stuff and I have lobbyists and ads and all this shit. And just, if anyone should know better than that, it should be me. And yet I fall for it every single time. And here we are yet now again, there's a continuing resolution that's supposed to be voted on by September 3rd to keep the budget going. Um, Congressman Gottheimer, my brother-in-law and about 50 other members, had a press conference last week saying there needs to be school meals money in there. I know that when, when push comes to shove, other than Josh, the other members will cave to Pelosi and, and they will vote for whatever she tells them to vote for, even if school meals is not in there, which it probably won't be. Um, and yet, uh, I can't not pursue it because, like— how if we've $10 billion more universal school meals, it feeds so many more kids, right? That like, how can you not take that shot? And so from an ambition standpoint, you know, here I am spending money, spending political capital, getting into fights with people and everything else for something that I kind of know will fail. Um, but I would say rather than this being me needing to sort of validate my childhood in any way, this is simply me seeing the results of our work and saying I would be crazy not to push it further. And it makes me feel really good about myself when we do things that help feed people.
1: We have one last question. How do you think this interview has gone?
0: Uh, you know, it's so funny. I was going to ask you would I get hired after all of this. No, I'm, I'm going to tell you. Um, badly. Um, badly? Be- yeah, because the the problem is... I'm too all over the place to be someone. So if I were interviewing me just now, I'd say this guy's not going to be able to like do what I say, listen to me, fit into the organizational structure and hierarchy. Like, maybe a smart, talented guy, maybe even not, a, maybe even a decent person, but you know, will not fit into a group setting. So I would probably based on the ans- based on the answers I just gave you, not hire me. Well, it's,
1: I guess it does depend on what kind of job it is, right? So if I was if I was going to hire you to like run. Some strategy thing, you know. If I was, if I had a startup like Uber and I had this big problem, like, you know, I think I'd want somebody who was like, like, had all the characteristics you're talking about. But obviously, that's an easy well, thing to say keep, since that keep in actually mind. happened. We we're <laughs> also like
0: people hire, and that's why one of the businesses I have is a consulting firm, right? right? So people can hire us, get the advantage of our skill sets. But we're not their employees, and they can fire us with yeah you know, with a thirty days notice.
1: But I was trying to think, and I was I was going to say this at the top of the the conversation of like what would I, what would the job be like something something that I was trying to think of something that you would actually entertain like if someone came to you and said we want you to interview for this job where you'd be like well look I really don't want a job but I mean, like I
0: occasionally I ha- think what jobs would I? Well, still I, have to I came
1: up with three. Okay? okay, so and one of them is just sort of a type of job, but one of them would be. Um, editor publisher of the New York Times like you run the whole thing okay just because the opportunity to do that and to have that level of influence over the news in the world I think is be too great not to have the interview okay um, general manager of the Mets okay um, and the other one I was trying to think of as sort of a type is like like a cabinet job like Secretary of State or something you right. know something so prestigious and gigantic that you'd be like well I'd have right.
0: to so I would say I'm not qualified for any of those. Of course jobs. you're not. No, no. Um, special general general manager of the Mets. Although I think that I am. No, I think actually of um, the three, but, you'd but, be the best at that. I have, but I have uh, interestingly in my back of my head a couple of corollaries that are not that different. Okay. Right? Mayor of the city of New York. Right. I think I'd be really good at the job. I'm not an electable candidate. I'm not good looking. I'm not charismatic. Also, there's no interview process for that. I'm not friendly. Well, there is. It's called a campaign. (laughs) Right. Um, So I'm not a a viable candidate, but I think I'd be really fucking good at the job. Right. Um, Commissioner of baseball. Same thing. That's boring, though, isn't it? No, because I would try to really save and evolve. I would make people crazy because I would have so many different reforms and changes and everything that the purists would hate me. And I I don't know if I would do a good job working with the owners because— Should we start a baseball league? Uh, if we want to lose to try, more money, try so. all your ideas. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> well, didn't we read an article about some crazy experimental league? Yeah, We were gonna try yeah. to get them on the podcast. The Savannah
1: Bananas, but it's everywhere. It's like, and it, but it also is like kind of a clown show. It's not really, it's not baseball exactly. Yeah.
0: So anyway, so Commissioner of Baseball would work. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I couldn't be Secretary of State, but if I got called and said, "Do you want to be the Secretary of," Transportation, or you know, something like that—that that, that my skill sets will allow for. Yes, I would, oh, sir, transportation I you'd consider? Not real, not that I'm a transportation expert. I'm just thinking like right. the, the jobs that don't require a very specific history in diplomacy or military or, right. you know, yes, I'd run a venture fund. Yes, I kind of broadly have a sense of economics, but I couldn't be the Treasury Secretary. Right. So I could be the Commerce Secretary. So, yeah, I, I'd probably do something like that. Um, and then the, the Times question, I, I guess you're right in the sense that the amount of influence would have, but my g- dislike for the Times specifically and generally, if you think about it, one of the ways that I rail against the New York Times this, on this podcast frequently is that it went from being a quasi-objective news source to simply an outlet and voice of progressives uh, as a business model choice, not even as a political choice. And it's been a very good business model choice. Um, But I know that if I was running the Times, I would use it specifically only to further my agenda, which means I would be doing the exact thing that I just accused them of doing.
1: So um, we're going to wrap this up right now, this part of the podcast. But I will say this. So I think that um, although obviously a lot of your answers were sort of unconventional and, and not really? not classic Surprising. sort of job interview material, I think that what the book is about is actually trying to find people who actually are like that, right? Who aren't hierarchical, who aren't credential based, who aren't you know like who aren't just whose primary skill isn't just sort of packaging themselves and making themselves like sort of seem like the right person for something without yeah. actually bringing any ideas or originality to it. So. I would say. So after all that, I got the job. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hire you to be the general manager of the Mets. I'm gonna, okay. You, you, because actually, I think of all those positions, I think that's the one that you, you, and, and you here's, would be well, best I, at.
0: I actually, think so. Team president would be better, right? Because like in terms of evaluating talent, which is the general manager's job, I can't do that, right? No, no of course idea. not.
1: But they have, I mean, think of the systems they have right. now, right?
0: Right. But um, yeah, I
1: will. Uh, I'll gladly accept it. Okay, you, you, you're hired. Um, so we have like two or three odds and ends to talk yep. about. Um, so let's. I guess we should start with two, Section 230, which is the—well, why don't you describe it yeah, so for the 10-minute I mean, time? for 10 list. minutes time,
0: right now, one of the reasons why the Internet—the main reason why the Internet is so incredibly toxic is the platforms. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, whatever it is, um, they are legally immune from any liability for anything posted on their platforms itself. Because we know that negative content drives clicks— far more than positive content, and because all of those businesses are based on advertising revenue, it is extremely in their self-interest to allow as much toxic content as they can get away with because it makes them more money. But as a result, we have this incredibly perverse incentive that makes the internet sort of a dumpster fire. It, we see it hurting people all the time, especially younger people who don't have the ability to sort of distinguish between you know what's real and what's not real. So if you were to repeal Section 230 and make them liable for it, It would change their incentives completely because, yes, they make more money with toxic content because it drives more advertising. But if there are $10 billion judgments being, you know, awarded against them in court, um, that's a problem too, right? And I think ultimately the plaintiff's bar would manage to sort of come up with a better form of jurisprudence and a better system for regulating and moderating content um, than we have right now. So my view is not, unlike the rest of this podcast, uh, all of that out there, right? It's it's one of the only issues, or maybe the only issue, that in 2020, if you looked at the Biden platform and the Trump platform, they both agreed upon completely. Um, not much has happened on the issue in the, in the last two years, but last week, President Biden called upon Congress to repeal Section 230. Now, look, it's just a- It was in a kind of a weird
1: context, too. It was like, did you read the thing? It was like in a listening session, and that there were two- Tech CEOs there, one from Sonos and one from Mozilla, which are two, you know, kind of quirky.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the point was there are a handful, I don't get the Sonos piece, but there's, there's a handful of platforms that try as a business model to be the anti-Google, the anti-Facebook and say like, we don't track your data. We don't, you know, target ads based on the content of your emails or anything else like that. Um, I don't know if it's a successful business model or not. I don't think it's particularly successful.
1: Yeah, do you know anybody uses Mozilla? No. Right. Uh, or
0: DuckDuckGo, or DuckDuckGo, I know, because they um, advertise during the Met games endlessly on the radio. Um, I listen to a lot of the games on the radio or on my phone streaming. But um, so, point is this, Biden called for it. Do I think that in and of itself then achieves this? No, but, especially in a weird way, if the House does flip to the Republicans, it's one of those issues, tech regu- big tech regulation, that both parties happen to agree on for different reasons, Right. The Republicans hate big tech because they think there's an anti-conservative bias. There's censorship. They're treated unfairly. Um, Liberals or progressives hate big tech because they think that it really helped elect Trump in 2016 and created the Tea Party in 2010 and everything else. They hate them for different reasons, but they both hate them and the enemy of my enemy. So um, you could see a world where if Congress and the White House said, look, we got to try to get something done in the next two years so that we don't look like total assholes, um, big tech regulation might be one of those things, whether it's repealing Section 230 or stronger antitrust laws or a privacy framework or something like
1: that. Looks like they and they they were talking about crypto again last week too. They released what looked like something that had already been released to me, but like Yeah, uh, it did, didn't
0: didn't rotate really <laughs> anything new. But I mean to me, and I feel like the crypto industry keeps misinterpreting this stuff because, you know, they'll see some flowery language that talks about innovation and jobs and, you know, how we're gonna protect internet freedom. But really, to me, what these things are always saying is, hey, Gary Gensler, chairman of the SEC, do what you got to do, right? I, th- I think they're reinforcing <laughs> his power, and Gensler's anti-crypto. And so I-, I don't see this as a positive development for the industry.
1: OK, our final topic of the day, the owner of the Suns, Robert Sarver, yeah. was suspended for a year, fined $10 million by the NBA commissioner for, I guess, various racist and sexist sort of comments in a general environment that he has created within his organization. Um, the reaction was that the commissioner had been too timid, generally, and that he deserves to have the franchise taken away from him. What is your...
0: Yeah, well, idea? so look, and, and the reason I tell you I to talk about it wasn't so much to be get another person to say right. that they should have taken it away from Sarver. And you sent me an interesting article over the weekend were the author of it. It uh, Ethan Strauss, yeah. Made the case that franchise values are only really strong because owners are basically protected from the normal rules of life. I don't believe that to be true. I think that, as we've said before, owning a sports professional sports team in this country is royalty, and so many people want the validation and attention that comes with it, that they would bid for it just as much whether or not the standards were higher. And by the way, the same standards that owners should be held to these people are already held to in the rest of their businesses anyway, right? They understand that if they say really uh, offensive stuff on Twitter, they will be canceled and their shareholders will punish them and everything else. So I, I don't even agree with the, the what you said. So yeah, I think Sarver should have been thrown out. But you I do want, think he
1: should have been thrown out. Yeah,
0: but I want to take it a step further, which is, I think it should be much easier to throw out owners in general, right? Which is I would like to see there be a form of eminent domain where the league or maybe even the city that hosts the team can say, if you are historically bad, for X amount of time, kind of like relegation in soccer, um, but instead of relegating them, you would change ownership. Or if you don't put X amount of resources, and some leagues have floors, what you have to spend, but even if you're just spending the floor, like, I think they all mean, do at this point. Yeah, don't they? but, but it, does, it sends a pretty clear message if you're just spending the floor that all you're doing is trying to make money, you don't give a shit about the fans. Um, I think that if owners are significantly underperforming, they should be removed because I think it's unfair to ask fans like Knicks fans like us to just live with a perpetually pathetic team. I would like to see there's there something, be something where um, the NBA could say, hey, Dolan, you've made the playoffs you know, twice in the last 20 years. You've had six different scandals. Um, we are taking the team away from you. We're, and you get the money. We're just going to put it on the market and probably we'll fetch $4 uh, billion. Oh, we should have
1: interviewed you to be the owner of the, of the Knicks then. That would have been a good... Job for you. Yeah,
0: I don't. I like baseball much better than basketball.
1: Okay, um, Bradley, you're supposed to say stuff at the end of the oh, podcast right, right, right. because gonna... also our only our true fans could possibly have listened all the way to the end here. So if you are one of those true
0: fans, what nope. should, what should you do? Number one, I always forget this, but please rate and review us. I, I think we have a, po- a good podcast. If you've listened to the end of this, I assume you, you probably agree. Um, but we'd like to have a bigger audience and one of the ways to do that is just to have more and more reviews. Our our reviews are really good. I think with something like a 4.8 or 4.9 on Apple, but there's only like 50 something off of them. So we could we really appreciate that number one. Number two, we are recording, which I should have said at the top from PT Netware is a bookstore and podcast studio that I own on 180 Orchard Street on the lower east side of Manhattan. If you need books or it is a podcast studio that anyone can use for free. If you want to record your own podcast. Um, come on by and we'll we'll set you up.
1: And it's an extra incentive to come in, Bradley this morning came by with a big package. And there's a new piece of artwork in the bathroom. We're not going to say what it is. Our friend, it's, it's, it's from our friend Charlie. Charlie Gross, excellent photographer. Very funny picture that is very appropriate to be hung in a bathroom. Um, and it's there. And it's go, it'll go up today, probably, right? Yeah,
0: yeah it certainly will. So, uh, did I, was there anything else I'm supposed to talk about that I forgot? I don't think so. I think that's announcements. Good. Yeah, we'll, cool. we'll, we'll see you next week, Brad. All right, see you next week.
1: Bye.